Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. Today, my guest is Dr. Justice Matthews. After studying composition with Gerald Strang, Justice became a professor of theory and composition at CSULB, where he taught and directed the New Music Ensemble for many years. He has written music for vocal and instrumental ensembles and several pieces for electronics, which have been performed throughout the U.S. and Europe. He has also written music and created sound design for many theater companies in Southern California. As a clarinetist, Justice has performed extensively as a soloist and ensemble player. He has received several grants and prizes for his works, including several Dramalogue Critics Awards and a Robbie Award for his original music and sound design. And now, my interview with Dr. Justice Matthews. What high school did you go to? I went to Reseda High School. And then when did you start playing clarinet? I started playing clarinet in seventh grade when I was at Birmingham High School. One day, the teacher said, anybody want to go to the music room? And I said, yeah. I put my hand up because I wanted to get out of this classroom. So I went to the music room, and they said, we're here to find out if you're interested in playing an instrument. I said, yeah, I want to play clarinet. And it was because I'd seen the Benny Goodman story with my father, and I fell in love with the instrument. That's where I started. And then my father started giving me lessons, and you know, and because it was the San Fernando Valley, that's where all the studio musicians were, and that's where everything was happening. So if you were around people, you got to know all the names of everybody. Pretty soon you were playing also saxophone, and you were also playing something else. I played oboe, because I wanted to be a doubler, because I heard that studio musicians would make lots of money. So then I got mixed up with the big band world, and eventually went on the road once with Mathis and then that was it. I just didn't want to go. Mathis? Johnny Mathis? Yeah, Johnny Mathis and then the next one was Stan Getz. Yeah, it was two weeks later John Gross says to me you want to go on the road with Getz? And I said, I know where this is going to go. I'm going to wind up never going to the university. I just kind of gave that whole thing up. When you graduated high school, you went into college as a music major? Yeah, I was also a music major in high school because at that time they had choice between majoring or college prep or auto shop. They had these th- this thing called Carnegie Units, and you, you had to have A's and B's and 26 Carnegie Units. I had no idea what that was, but I had it. Once that happened, then you, you just sort of floated into college. Let's start at the beginning. Give me your musical history before you got here. I started at Cal State Northridge, which at that time was called San Fernando Valley State College. That was in 1962. The reason why I went there was because a member of the family had gone to Juilliard, and she came back and chatted with my father about the fact that I should really go to Cal State Northridge because they had an excellent faculty, and the emphasis was specifically on getting into a class with Gerald Strang. My father knew nothing at all about him, but she said that he was a superb person, that he had worked with Schoenberg, talked a lot about the things that he had done, particularly his background in the musical acoustics and also in the aerospace industry during World War II. So I knew that he was a scientist and a brilliant mind. So I walked into Cal State Northridge in 1962 as a freshman, sat in a classroom for Harmony One. And there were far too many students, and far too many meant that there were about 30. So a man came in the room who had a crew cut, older man, and he said, we're going to split right down here 
everybody on the right-hand side, follow me. The left-hand side, stay here. The left-hand side stayed with Leonard Berkowitz, who was a student of Paul Hindemith. And I went with this man who had the short hair across the hall to a different room, and his name was Gerald Strang, and we didn't know that. What happened was he started talking and talking and talking about how he teaches, and a student said, by the way, who are you? And he said, oh, and he wrote his name, I remember, in cursive, Gerald Strang. I quickly learned that he was an assistant to Schoenberg at UCLA, largely because he could speak German, and Schoenberg's English was awful, and so he did a lot of translating. He told me some extraordinary stories. One of them, Schoenberg had an encyclopedic knowledge of music, said he wanted to talk about form in music, and he remembered that an example of this came in a Beethoven's piano sonata. Don't remember now which one it was. So he said, uh, how many students in here play piano? So about three or four hands went up, and he picked somebody. Come up here, please, and sit down at the piano for me while I chat a little bit, but I want you to play some examples for me from measures 53 through 67 of the third movement of Opus 111. The student said, where's the music? And he said, you call yourself a pianist and you don't have all of the 32 piano sonatas of Beethoven memorized? Get up and go back to your seat. Schoenberg, at that point, wrote on the board all the music that he was talking about for the example. So he wrote it all out, and then he sat down at the piano and played it while he was at the same time talking to the analysis. So there were many, many examples that were like that of Schoenberg's incredible knowledge of music. During that first semester, Strang said to me, I want to show you something, which I just got. He was very happy with it, and it was supposed to be a very impressive thing. And I couldn't quite understand why it was so big, but he got this letter which invited him to compose music at Bell Telephone Laboratories. Man, I didn't know anything about what this was about, but this was the center of the beginning of computer music. And he went there and he did the first computer music piece as an artwork, not as a, one of these things that Max Matthews was doing, which were ex more experimental things. I think it was a piece called Composition or something like that. He then came back in the fall of 63, and I was taking Harmony 3 and also Counterpoint with De La Vega. And Strang said, we're doing a big concert of contemporary music. There are things like Atmosphere with Rosbaut, with the Donau Schengen performance. There were two rooms at Northridge. One of them is the choral room and one's the so-called band room. And you could walk between the two very easily, but Trang was very impressed. He says, there's 90 dB of isolation between these two rooms, so we can record in this room. He did that kind of thing at the school, and he was always talking about acoustics, and when he got into the whole subject of harmony, he would talk about strings and how they vibrate, and he would say to a student, you get over there with this rope, and I'll be over here, and we, let's swing the thing. He says, this is how strings move. He was an extraordinary teacher. Northridge was a building which was acoustically designed by Strang, he decided that he wanted something which was absolutely cutting edge for the time. The building, I think, went up in 61, and I, in 61, I went over and actually looked at it when it was still being constructed inside. In summer of 62, they had this thing, a summer institute for high school students to get used to what it might be like at college. And I said, why not? I'll just do it. It wasn't just band. We also had a thing in chamber music, and we all also had a thing in harmony. So it took the whole entire day. It started with harmony in the morning, and then later on it played. And then we had chamber music in the afternoon, that sort of thing, he went home. And that went on for about three weeks, and it was absolutely fabulous. But what you did was you got a sense of what Cal State Northridge was like. These classrooms, 
history theory, five of the practice rooms were outfitted with a, a connection to what was called a master control room, which was upstairs. And so when you wanted to record something from your practice room, if you play your clarinet or something like see what it sounds like, you say, could you record me? And they'd say, yeah. And so they push the button, you'd play it, and then they would play it back to you so you get an idea of what's going on. He wanted this kind of thing. And those rooms were all non-parallel walls. They were very strange. They looked like they were just boxes, but if you measured them, there was a slight difference from one wall to another wall. And classrooms all had behind them this long oblong glass. And I said, what was behind there? So one day, Frank opened up the doors and walked inside. It was like a recording studio. Tape recorders, mixer panel, the whole thing. And he says, here, you see, if you look inside the room, there's there's microphone outlets. Also, the walls had these sliding panels, and you could move them, and suddenly you had cork, or you could move it over to there, and it was very hard plastic. So you could get all kinds of different acoustical things. Every classroom was designed this way. The speakers were these huge voice of the theater speakers, which meant you could get a lot of sound, but you didn't have to turn up loud. And it felt like you were in a movie theater. The thing I could say about Jerry Strang is that he had an enormous interest in the quality of education and music. But I can tell you one story that I remember him talking about that I decided that this is how I'm going to remember teaching. He said, this is how I teach, just like Schoenberg. And he drew a line across the blackboard. He says, this is what we're doing today. And we come back in two days. And he says, and you can see I'm picking up a little bit of what we did last time and then moving forward. He also, just like Schoenberg, he said, what you will do each time is I will not give you an assignment. I'm going to talk about, let's say, augmented six chords. You're going to turn in examples of augmented six chords to me automatically. I want 10 to 20 examples next class meeting. And he went through and corrected every one of them and showed you other ways he could do it, which was exactly like Schoenberg did. It's just all this writing in, in, in red ink, but it was very, very clear exactly how, how it should be done. And I stayed there for six years, got a, a BA and an MA, oh, okay. and then I went to Buffalo. Oh. Yeah. I didn't go to Buffalo right away. I went to UCLA, but the experience was not very good. So I was desperately trying to get out. <laughs> So I got the letter one day saying, yeah, we'll take you to Buffalo. And I said, oh, uh, bye, bye UCLA, and I'm, I'm out of here. When I was at Buffalo, I applied to a lot of schools, and most of them, they didn't want to even interview anybody. But I suddenly got this call from here, from Jerry Daniel, who was the chairman of the department at the time. And I think what helped me a lot was Strang, more than anything, because I had done very well Strang as a student, and he liked the idea that I had gone on to Buffalo, particularly because my association there was with Hiller, and Hiller was involved in a lot of technology and a lot of mathematics and so forth. And so Strang's feeling was this was a, a good thing for Long Beach to have somebody like this around. Strang had just left. I wrote letters to him saying that I wanted to apply to school, and he wrote back to me saying, good to hear from you, and I'm no longer at Long Beach. In 1975, Strang gave all his stuff, his library, to the music department, and we did a big performance of a bunch of his music. At the time, Mitch Berman, who was a grad student here, was writing his thesis on the life of Strang. I found out that they were doing this concert, that Mitch was the person behind it. He came to me and said, you know, Strang's got this solo clarinet piece. So I looked at it and I saw the date on it. It was, I think it's around 1922 or something like that. This is a sonatina. I said, I want to do it. I hadn't played clarinet in eight years, and it was like hell. Practicing, 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 practicing. But I got myself back and I played the piece. It's a three-movement piece. 
Tell me about your experience here at Cal State Long Beach. I remember certain faculty members, Claire Rayner, that he was doing this Southern California music series. He was taking his grad students and saying, such and such a person who lives in Hollywood played a lot of music of Schoenberg's. What you should do is you should go interview these people so the students would do that. That stuff's got to be sitting around here. I, did, I never knew what happened to it, but it, I knew that Claire Rayner had kept all of it. Another one was Ron Sindelar, who, who Strang had hired. He came from Stanford, was an excellent pianist. But the things which I particularly really remember are, which are quite different from now, when I count out the fact that there were five full-time theory faculty members and there were three or four people who were doing part-time, when you added up all the units, there were seven full-time theory faculty members and there were half the number of students there are now. The thing which I remember is that Jerry Daniel would take me in the office and he would say, I want you to do certain kinds of things within the department. It had to do with making sure that all the areas of the department were following the guidelines of the university and the department because there were some people who were cheating. They were saying to students, oh, you don't need to take this class, you can take this class. instead." So Daniel was this kind of guy who really was very concerned about what was going on in history, what was going on in theory, what was going on in composition. He, he was fussy about this. He did not want anybody screwing around. He would hold only one faculty meeting a semester. He says, you go forth and you teach, and I don't want anybody missing office hours. He said, the students are the number one thing. That's what we're about. He just was that kind of person. He had taught this class called Arts and Society, which all music majors had to take before they could take anything else for semester. And he did it himself. He went through all the arts and related it to social things throughout the world. He would talk about music of India. He would talk about music of Latin America. He would talk about the arts, the sculpture, paintings, dance, rituals. It was an incredible class. And he also was the undergraduate advisor. He told each student, this is what you'll take this semester. And that was it. You didn't take anything else. He was like a dictator about this kind of thing. But what he did was he, he managed it. He would look and see what the student did, what the grades were. He said, okay, this is what you take. He'd also say what teacher you should take it with. What, uh, what classes were you teaching when you got here? I taught uh, harmony and musicianship, counterpoint, analysis, orchestration. Around 1978, when the uh, university instituted this idea of the IC classes, they were upper division. Faculty members all over the university could submit a plan for a particular type of class. I submitted three and one of them caught, and that was the one with the art department and trying to talk about the relationships between society and the arts and how they reflected things like psychology or real-life experience. Basically, what we tried to do was to talk about art and music and the idea of primitivism. And that's where you, for example, bring in Steve Reich, because you could go back and you could deal with the music of Ghana. We would talk about art and music and psychology, he would do the art stuff first, and then I would do the music. We had about eight or nine topics. Cal Gross would do his talk one week, and then he would do the next week. And then we'd go back and forth like that, and pretty soon the semester was done. In my first summer, after my first year here, this was the summer of 1972. We invented a class with dance, music, theater, and art. And Gene Cooper was in art and Ken Rugg was in theater, and Ramsey, I forgot her first name, she was in dance, and myself in music, because at that point there were only four departments in the art area. Design was not part of it. 
So we decided that we would put together something where it would encompass all those arts together at the same time. For example, uh, Gene Cooper did something at one of the galleries where there were people walking around with painted art objects and themselves, and there was music going on. I brought in Pauline Oliveros. She did one of these kind of things about dreams, and everybody around the stage going, home. And then Lynn Barrow and her girlfriend knocketh a bowl and it'd go dong like this. And then the person there would say a dream that they had had, and then to go to the next person and so forth. And everybody also made a little food, and we had the food, and nobody could speak. And after an hour and a half of not speaking, it was very strange. <laughs> I couldn't make a sound. <laughs> but it was a really successful class. And I remember uh, Ken Rugg, they did the uh, liquid theater in the theater department where you go through and people touch you and, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't see anything. And it was very, very strange. And then I went outside and they put me in a box and they covered the box and then they had the sounds of nailing that sort of thing. How long could you stay in this? And I said, let me out, let me out. <laughs> Claustrophobia set in pretty fast, but it was very interesting. Not just the theater, but also the sound and the movement and everything else. They were trying to make sure that all of the other areas were, were involved artistically. I think that also the, the association of the New Music Ensemble was a big thing. Jerry Daniel wanted the New Music Ensemble to be a big deal. He wanted to produce three or four concerts a semester, and so they handed it over to me. And you and did it for how long? 36 years. But that was a really great experience. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. We'd, first, we were doing concerts on the road. We went up to Dominguez Hills. We went to Bakersfield. I went to Santa Cruz and so forth because there was a lot of money in California. And then that ended when the money dried up. It was a long period of time when we were still in the old music department where I had a nice relationship with the theater department. So I did a lot of new music ensemble concerts in their small little theater. Yeah. That was really great because then we could do stuff that where we'd go to the audience. And, but it wasn't the, sort of the stage, a proscenium position, but, but it was more, uh, more of an active thing artistically between the two. Jerry Daniel, when he was still here as chair, was really, really interested in Calder, his mobiles, his house had them. And I told him, you know, right now they have this piece that they're doing at CalArts called Calder Piece, which is a huge mobile that was built for the purposes of percussion. This thing had a pretty good span to it, and it spun in a circle, so if you hit it, it could keep moving. There was a real score for this thing. It was an old brown score, which meant, you know, boxes and things like that. Jerry Daniels said, I want that sculpture here. CalArts wanted to get rid of it because of this insurance issue. They were very nervous about the thing. So once they found out that Long Beach State was interested, and it was kind of like, oh, thank God we can get it off our hands. So we went up there with a van, with a Volkswagen van, put this thing carefully in this van and we're going down the freeway to Long Beach and we don't, what do we do with this? So we decide to pull into receiving. We explained to the person about it, no idea what Calder was. They said, look, we'll just put it in storage. Meanwhile, Daniel became very ill and he died from it. So I had no one to go to. No one else really was interested in this. So the thing was labeled as junk by the police department. And later on, I guess somebody from CalArts wanted it back. It was just a very strange thing. How did you get involved in doing sound design for theater? That was because in 1987, my wife was working for Long Beach City College. And I was going to rehearsals. I said to her, I don't understand why we're hearing the sound out of that speaker when the phonograph is upstage. So she said, well, what do you do about it? And I said, well, you put a speaker back there, 
and you play it out of that. But also, you got to do something to the sound because this is coming from a little tiny thing like this. Got it really changed the the color of the sound. If you can't have like big speaker, it doesn't make sense. So she said, "I'll tell the director." So that that got the director interested. Yeah, so I helped him out. Then, sometime shortly after that. One of the directors at Long Beach City College was doing Romeo and Juliet, and he wanted to have some music of that particular period of time that really took place. So I got a bunch of music for him, just handed it to him, he, and he put it together, did a nice job. That was sort of the beginnings of it. And then I met this director who was doing this production of Frankenstein, and he wanted to do it like not the Bolton, the jaw type thing, but he wanted to do it as a real compassionate story. But since the whole idea of Frankenstein was all the stuff that's sort of been put together by parts, he said, I really want synthetic music. I want something which sounds like it was really also put together. So I put some music together for him, kind of a la a little bit Hollywood, because I was not trying to make this like artsy, big sounds and boom, and you know, that sort of thing, and dramatic, and et cetera. And, and I done everything in quad. So I used a quad machine over there, and I, I laid all the sound in different positions, so it kind of like moved a bit. And then after it was done, the director said uh, he liked it a lot, and the next thing you know, I'm being asked to do sound design. So that's how it started. And then it, it kind of continued from there. I think the big one was when I did uh, Piece of My Heart, which is about the Vietnam War. That gave me another drama log award. <laughs> I was just kind of like getting them now and then. You know how many you've won? I think I got six or so or something. I worked for a long, long time, 10 years at Santa Ana College, also as a sound designer. When did you retire? What year? I retired in 2011. Okay, so what's going on since then? I'm living in St. Louis with my two uh, wonderful granddaughters and my wife and the rest of the family. And I play clarinet, although I'm playing too much. I've got to cut down the on that because I've got to compose more. It's a nice life. Who, who are you playing with? I've been playing in the St. Louis Wind Symphony. Um, I'm also the principal clarinetist of a local community orchestra, which is not a great orchestra, although they bring in people, uh, ringers. And ringers in St. Louis are people who usually have been at Juilliard or, or New England Conservatory or Curtis or someplace like that who don't have a gig. And so they'll do anything to get money. And they come and they just sight read it. They play Pretty decent orchestral music, symphonies and sometimes Bernstein and, you know. Oh, oh then I also play in two klezmer groups. One of them plays pretty regularly, and the other one only plays at high holidays. It's fun. I didn't know how to do it, so I met a guy who plays very, very good klezmer. was from New York. Got a little help from him and a suggestion. And, I, you know, you look online to learn how to play klezmer and meet people who do it and that sort of thing. And then you do some practicing. I'm, I'm still working at it but it's a lot of fun. And then I also play with another little couple of groups who play music for dancers, but i am got to cut back. i got to get an opera done. You're writing an opera? Yeah. yeah. What's the subject? It's a play by Arcto called The Jet of Blood. I've been working on it for a long, long time. I've got to finish it this year. It's a very big orchestra, huge, Wagnerian. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, it's just about time for lunch, so let's wrap this up, and I'll just say thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.